scroll in your Bible app or turn in your copy of the scriptures to the Gospel of Luke, uh, chapter 2. Luke, chapter 2. While you do that, let me tell you a little bit about Sarah. Uh, My wife, Sarah, some of you, if we've been in conversation before, you may have heard me refer to her as a voracious reader. Uh, And that she is. Uh, It is not uncommon for Sarah to read upwards of 50 books in a year. 50 books in a year. In a year. Uh, Last year or the year before, uh, I think she read 62 books. And not like, oh, I count that as a book, but it's a booklet. I mean like, ooh, books. Like legit books. 62 books in a year. She's a freak. It's crazy. 62 books in a year. So here's the thing with Sarah. Sarah, as you can tell, likes to read, right? Like, why would she put herself through that if she didn't? I like to read what I like to read. Does that make sense? Do you hear the difference? Sarah likes to read. I like to read what I like to read. For me, reading is a means to an end. And therefore, I'm fairly selective in what I read. That's not because I don't like reading. I do, but it has to be worth the time invested. I think people who like to read, just generally speaking, they like the act of reading. They like that as something they're doing. And so what they're reading is slightly secondary to the fact that they are reading. And so while they have preferences, they tend to read more broadly than those of us who don't like to waste our time. That sounded judgy. I didn't mean for it to be that judgy. But one of the categories that Sarah likes to read in is historical fiction. Raise your hand. You've heard of this. Historical fiction. It's a category of uh, books that I actually don't believe exists. <laughs> guess what, folks? If it's historical, it's not fiction. If it's fiction, guess what it's not? Historical. So we've had this conversation back and forth a few times. And she says, no, 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 it is. It takes place in a bygone era. And they do a lot of research as to what it was like back then. And so it's set in a time. It's very realistic. So, and I said, so it's historical. And she goes, yeah, but it's a novel. So it, it's not that it happened. I said, so then it's fiction. She says, yeah, but it's historical fiction. I said, it ain't both. It's historical or it's fiction. She says, no, you don't get it. It's, they do research. It's not just this, just like they made this stuff up. And it's, so it's based on historical fact. And I said, so it's historical. And she says, but it's not fact. I say, so it's fiction. And round and round and round we go until I get one of these. Pete, and just kind of, can you picture her? Pete, I just, just, and so we stop. And I stop, but if you ask me, Circle gets the square. So in any event, why do I bring this up? Because much has been written in an attempt to fill the gap that we have in between Jesus as an infant, right? Days old. So we looked at last week. He was eight days old, being circumcised, going through the, the rituals that he was supposed to according to the law. Eight days old and Jesus at 12 years old. There's a huge gap there. And I don't know if you're aware, there's been a lot of writing as to surmise what Jesus might have been like during that time. Now, it's, it's interesting to read. It's just not factual. There's nothing based in the scriptures, so we don't look at it as inspired uh, scriptures. Uh, but, but one time I had a, a New Testament seminary professor say, part of our class, guess what we had to read? And we had to read a book about what somebody was surmising Jesus might have been like. I think it was between ages 7 and 8 or 8 and 9. And um, it, was, it was actually fairly interesting. But he was basically saying, look at this and based on what you know of Jesus, based on Christology, what you know of Christ, see if it could have been true, surely wasn't true. Like we know we, we're not taking this to the bank. But yeah, that, 
That could have happened. And there's lots of crazy things out there. And so there's a big gap right here. So you have to see that. In Luke chapter 2, look at verse 40. Luke chapter 2, verse 40, it says, And the child grew, uh, the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. There you have it. Like that's everything we know about Jesus between eight days old and 12 years old. That's it. It's right there. One verse. That's what we know. That's all God inspired Luke to write about this huge space of time um, that we just don't have any record of. But we're here to talk about what we do know as has been revealed to us in the Word of God. So let's get right to it. Luke chapter 2, let's pick it up in verse 39. So this is coming out of what we discussed last week, right? This is Jesus after he was presented at the temple. Jesus after they had done everything. Verse 39, and when they had performed what? Everything according to the law of the Lord, they returned into Galilee, their own town of Nazareth. And so that's a reminder to us of Mary and Joseph's love for God, their careful attention. We want to do everything according to the law. Why? Because we love the Lord. We want to please him with our lives. And so we see here a great love, a great devotion that Mary and Joseph had for God. And at that point, Jesus, being eight days old, I don't think it's wrong to say he was kind of along for the ride, right? Like, so he was just going with where his parents went, but his parents were raising him in the detailed uh, obedience of the law of the scriptures because they loved God. They were devout. They were careful to obey. And so there we see that they did everything according to the law. There's another reason Luke records that in verse 39, and that is because Jesus had to live according to the law perfectly in order for him to impute perfect righteousness to people like you and me who were sinners. And so Luke is a historian. He cares about detail. And he's like, I'm not writing it all, but you know the law. They did it all. Okay, moving on. That's what Luke says. They did everything according to the law. Verse 39. Verse 40 says, And the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. And now understand, again, between verse 40 and 41 is about 12 years. Okay, you got to see that. Whatever space there is, if it's just a space of a couple of characters in your Bible, or if there's a paragraph break, that space represents 12 years. Uh, verse 41. Now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. And so his parents, they did this. Uh, it says in uh, the next verse that they did this according to custom. So this was what they did. This was their thing. They would go up to Jerusalem at the time of Passover. Um, Nazareth to Jerusalem was about 80 miles, and the trip would last three-ish, four-ish days. And so picture, if you want to, all of our campuses are roughly 80 miles from Lexington. So this is a a walk to Lexington uh, over the course of three to four days. So if you ask me, they're hoofing it, right? Like 80 divided by three or four days, that's, that's like... Some pretty impressive through hiking. And so they're going down, they're going to Passover, and they would typically travel in large groups. Okay, so we see that later on. Uh, if you look at verse 44, uh, it says, supposing him to be in the what? In the group, right? They went with a group. And that was probably because they enjoyed fellowship. Hey, let's go together. It'll be fun. But also for safety, right? There's safety in numbers. And so this is an 80-mile trek Along the road, there's highway robbers and all sorts of danger that's out there for them. There's safety in numbers. It's not just one little family kind of making their way on an 80-mile journey. Let's go together. And so that's what they did. 
verse 42 says, when, they, when he was 12 years old, that's Jesus, they went up according to custom. Now, the fact that Jesus was 12, that's not just a fun fact they drop in there. Uh, Luke is telling us a fact because it matters. And if you realize what 12 meant to Jesus as a Jewish boy, this was a particularly important time. Because Jewish boys were considered accountable to the law of God on their own at the age of about 13 years old. This was a transition later known as bar mitzvah, right? Which means son of the law or son of the covenant. So this was a time when Jesus would have transitioned into I'm going along with this because it's my parents' thing to it's not my thing, okay? Just like kids growing up in believing homes, not much has changed. There's a certain time where you're going along because it's your parents' thing, right? You're, you're, why are you going to church? My parents go to church. I, do you like it? Do you dislike it? I mean, you might like it, you might dislike it, but you're going to church because you are in your parents' household and then you go. But at some point in your life, you're going to make a choice as to whether or not that's something you want to do and whether you really love Jesus and whether you really want to have fellowship with other people. There's going to be a time in your life when you choose whether this is what my family does and I do it with the family or if this is my thing, if I have personal faith, love, and joy in the Lord. And so that's where Jesus is basically right here. He is now considered to be, uh, he's about to be considered to be on his own, not apart from his family, but no longer a child who's just going with the flow. So this would have been an important Passover. Uh, Verse 43, and when the feast was ended, as they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents did not know it. Verse 44, but supposing him to be in the group, so let's stop there. And maybe you like, you're like, that's a major parenting fail, to just suppose he's in the group. I can actually relate to that. I'm very that way. Like, we could have, I remember back when the Fort Thomas campus was the Newport campus, and we would all, we walked across the Purple People Bridge to do a, like a, a church picnic uh, right there under the Yellow Bridge, and there's picnic. We had a great time, and my kids, they're around somewhere. That is how we roll. It may not be how you roll. You might be judging me. That's fine, but that is how we roll. We all got there. There's a group. He's, he's there around here somewhere. Can I see them right now? No, but they're around here somewhere. How do you know they're not drowning in the Ohio? I don't. But they're not. That's just, that's just, that tends to be how I think. It's just how I think. Um, so I don't really judge when I hear them say, you know, and then we would walk back across the, and I see my kids, but they're not all like, Sarah, I'll take two, you take two. We got this. Let's do it. No, we're kind of, they're walking around. They're with us. I see them. I don't see them. So I suppose them to be in the group. Now, maybe if you're you could be, no, I have to have my eyes on my kids at all times, every time. Not judging that at all. I'm just saying, I get it. So I get what they said. When they supposed to be in the group, I'm not like, these people. I get it. I could suppose him to be in the group. Verse 44, but supposing him to be in the group, they went a day's journey. See, that I don't get. So that's a day's journey. Okay, can we just draw a line here? Like, I'm fine with sitting at a picnic for an hour, and I kind of see two. I then see another one. I see a one. And then walking across the Purple People Bridge, which is a fairly short distance to say, like, I see two. They're here. We're kind of holding hands. we got one in a stroller. we got three walking. Someone's on someone's shoulders. It's fine. A day's journey? Joe, Mayor, what's the deal? A day's journey. Wow. But that's just what happened. That's just what happened. Supposing him into the group, they went a day's journey, but then they began to search for him among their relatives and acquaintances. It's been a day. We probably really should see him. It's been a while. 
I thought he was with you, and I thought he was with you. Why would you think he was with me? Well, because he's a kid. You take the kids. Yeah, but you're with the dudes. So he's a boy. Why would he go with Let's. We got to find him. They look around for him, right? Do you have him? Do you have him? I thought you said you saw him. I said before, where's Jesus? I thought you said there's Jesus. Oh, Oi, hey, we got to find the boy. Where's the boy? We got to look for him. So they're looking around and they're trying to find him and they don't find him. They exhaust all their options. They said they began to search from among their relative acquaintances. Verse 45. And when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem searching for him. Now, I, I've actually mentioned it before in a sermon that there was a time. There might be other times that I forgot about. There's one specific time where we lost Justin in Old Navy on Mole Road. He was little. It was just the three of us. He was our only kid at the time that I could. Maybe we had Jonathan and he was in a stroller, but Justin was with us and we're whatever. I don't know what we were doing, getting shirts or whatever we're doing, standing around the racks. And all of a sudden, we, we just don't see him. We call him. He doesn't respond. Sarah calls him. He doesn't respond. We look around the other side. He doesn't respond. We look near racks. We don't see him. So you know there's a, in your mind, there's a mental, he's probably fill in the blank, right? He's probably, he's probably under the rack. He's not there. He's probably on the other side. He's not there. Justin! Hey, buddy! He's probably in the front of the store. He's probably in the... But after you exhaust all the probablys, then I'm looking at the door. I'm looking for him and I'm looking at the door. Why am I looking at the door? Because I don't... Did he leave? Is he going to leave? Is someone going to take him out? Did he... I'm... I'm not saying I'm panicky, but I've, changed, I've transitioned from he's probably somewhere to I, where is he? And for me, I was just telling someone in between the services, I tend to go from he's, he's, he's fine. He's probably somewhere. I'm, I always kind of assume we're going we're gonna to find him to he's probably dead. Like I don't, I, I'm not that in between like, oh gosh, what? Like, what, do you think he's okay? Do you think, I'm going to, he's probably fine to, like, he's gone, and I'm, I don't have a special set of skills that Liam Neeson has, so I'm, I'm not able to get him on my, like, I'm, I, he's gone. He's gone. And we're looking around, and all of a sudden, like, an Old Navy employee comes walking out of the stock room with Justin. Big smile. Justin, look who we found. And he's got that look, that... Did you not know that I would be looking for hangers? Like, 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 did you? I knew where I was the whole time. I was fine. So, if you think about that, he's probably with the group, right? He's probably with the group. He's always with the group. You see, he's not, that's fine. Have you seen G? All right, I'm going to check in the front of the, Oh my gosh, we're a day outside of Jerusalem. He is not in this group. Oh my, the mood changes. Verse 45, when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem. What was that trip back like? So they're a day outside of Jerusalem then they have to go how far back? It takes a day to go back. Did they go with a group? Did they go with friends? Did they go alone? Is it scary to take that trip? Do you ever notice when you speculate, you never speculate to the positive? 
You think they were saying, you think Mary looked at Joseph and said, Joseph, what if he is sitting among holy men of God? (laughs) Not a parent on God's green earth, bro. Like that's not, no, no way. They're like, what if he's dead? Is that crazy? Jerusalem during Passover, tons of people. What if he's dead? What if he's hurt? What if we've lost him? We've lost our son. We've lost God's son. (laughs) But that feeling of, we laugh and it's fine. We know the end of the story, right? Mary and Joseph didn't. And so, oh my gosh, we've, what do you think could have, I know I saw him, but then he was, why would he not be with us? What happened? He's always with us. Somebody, he wouldn't leave us. Maybe somebody took him. Just that walk back, it just kind of boggles my mind. So let's think about this. Verse 44, they suppose he's in the group. Then they begin to search from among their relatives and acquaintances. So there's a, a day traveling thinking he's in the group, right? A quick search, then realizing he's not in the group. A day returning to Jerusalem, speculating, wondering, uh, fearful, anxious, A day looking for him in Jerusalem. What are they like? How are they sleeping? How are they eating? Probably not well all around, right? They're likely incredibly worried because they don't know what to do. So the day they leave, one day, the day they come back, two days, and then I assume a day searching. Verse 46, after three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them, and asking them questions. They found him. He's fine. He's sitting among the teachers, listening to what they have to say, and asking them questions. Why was he asking them questions if he is the perfect son of God? Because Jesus is fully God and fully man. And so he grew and learned and developed as a human being. When he stepped down from heaven and came in the form of a human being, he didn't, he didn't you say, but he's God. Yeah, but he didn't come out of the womb talking. That's super scary. He didn't come out of the womb like, talk, like oh, I know how to walk. It's not a big deal. No, he had to be taught to talk. He had to be taught to walk. He had to be taught how to eat. He had to, I mean, he, he was taught all of those things. He developed just like any other young boy, just without sin. And so he's asking questions because that's what boys do. They ask questions. Hey, what about this? What about that? So he's sitting there and he's asking questions. But look at verse 47. Here we find Jesus asking them questions, but it's also this. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his what? Answers. You only give answers if you are asked a question. And so understand what's happening here. Here's young Jesus sitting in the temple among the teachers, asking them questions. They're amazed at his understanding that he has a depth of insight. But don't miss this. They're so amazed at his depth of insight that they are also what? They're asking him questions. They're amazed at his answers. This is an amazing time in the life of Christ. At a time when he would be in the Jewish faith, right, transitioning from being 
a child of a believing home to a believer, right? And saying, am I going to take this? And so he is sitting there with the teachers, listening, but also what? Teaching. At 12. Answering their questions. And people are amazed. They're amazed at his understanding and his answers. Verse 47, and the word answers, that's the Greek word, it means answers. Like, it's not like, what did that really mean? Did it really mean answers? In fact, the same word is used in John 19 when it says that when Pilate was questioning Jesus, Jesus gave no what? Answer. So it's the same Greek word. It, like, legitimately means answers. Twelve-year-old Jesus. Uh, The title of the sermon is, it's 10 AD. Do you know where your children are? I'm excited about it. I was really excited about that title. Anyway, point number one. You need to be careful not to personalize that which isn't personal. You need to be careful not to personalize that which isn't personal. Verse 48. When his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, son, why have you treated us so? And so let's ask a question about the question, and that is this. Look at Mary's question. Why have you treated us so? Here's what I want to ask you. Is there an answer Jesus could have given to satisfy Mary's feelings at that moment? Surely not. Son, why have you treated us so? Jesus, you know, I'm glad you asked. Here's why, because I, I, I want you to know. No. There's not an answer that Jesus could have given that would have satisfied her question. I would venture to say that Mary is doing what I could completely understand, and you should too. She was hardcore emoting. Why would you do this to, uh, like, three days missing her child, thinking he was lost, thinking he was in danger, thinking maybe he's dead, three days of traveling a ton, one day of searching, probably not sleeping or eating well, she's spent. I get it. No judgment, girl. Like, I get it. You are spent, and you see your son, you're astonished, but the first thing you say is, why would you do this to us? But understand what the question is designed to do. The question is designed to make someone feel a sense of guilt. Right? A sense of guilt. Maybe remorse, but really guilt or shame. How? It's one of these, this face. How could you? Why would you? Why have you treated us this way? She goes on. She says, behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. Before he can even answer, she, how many of us have have been there, right? Where you ask a question, you're not really wanting an answer. You really just, it's a question, but it's a statement. Why would you do this to us? Do you know what I've been through? Let me tell you what I've been through. It's like, do you want me to answer? No. Like, and the answer is no. It's just emotion. It's, it's, it's grief. It's sadness. You're happy. You're ticked, you're re- glad that the kid's safe, but why would this happen? Why would you? We always go together. This is not how we raised you. We always stay together. It's an understandable question, but it's not a neutral question. It's a question that implies her mentality at the time. She's upset. And she's personalizing that which isn't personal. 
Okay, so Jesus didn't stay back. I'll show them. Let me show them that I'm the son of God. I can take care of myself. No. I'll show my parents who's boss. No. So she is personalizing that which isn't personal. Who among us can't relate to that, right? I can. I can't tell you how many times I've looked back upon a situation and realized I took something personally that was really not personal. I, I took that personally, but it really wasn't personal. It wasn't against me. And I bet it's the same with you too. It's our go-to. It's a method of self-defense. Adam does it in the garden in a sense, right? God says, have you eaten from the tree I commanded you not to eat? And Adam, before he says yes, he says what? Uh, the woman, what does he say? The woman you gave me, so thanks, thanks for that. The woman you gave me, she gave me the fruit to eat and yeah, I ate. How could you do that to me? Like, I'm like, I've not been living that long. I'm sitting here naked in the garden, hanging out with the animals, naming them and all. And you give me this woman and she gives me the, what? Wow. Why did you, God? Why did you do this to me? Why have you treated me this way? Mary and Joseph, why would he do this to us? We didn't raise him this way. It's not how we roll. What about you? We're the LaRufas. We're the Smiths. We're the Joneses. We're the Brown. I don't know, fill it in. We're the whatever. We're athletes. We're an athletic family. We're homeschoolers. That's what we do. There's a culture here. Whatever that culture, you define it, whether it's your last name or how you roll or how you educate or what team you root for or what, whatever it is. Like, why would that happen? Why would, oh, uh, oh, uh, it's how we roll. And so Mary and Joseph do this. But look at the first part of verse 48. It says that when his parents saw him, they were what? Astonished, Right? So what I want to do is I want to present to you, it's in your outline, but four signs that you might be taking things too personally. It's not really, it's actually four things that might happen if you're taking things. I don't know, if, whatever. I'm going, to, I'm going to give you four things. I hope it's helpful. Four signs you're taking things too personally. Number one, or letter A, your awe gives, quickly, gives way quickly to, to argument. Verse 48 shows that they have two responses to finding Jesus in the temple. The first is, not anger, astonishment. There's a small part of them that realizes, uh, this is amazing. Amazing that he's safe. Amazing that he's healthy. Amazing that he's sitting among these Jewish teachers, talking to them, answering their questions. This is amazing in many ways. They're astonished, right? There's a small part of them that realizes they're seeing a prophecy fulfilled. Like he really is the Christ child. He really is the son of the living God. He really is different from all the other children, from all their other children. He, he is really different. And we really are blessed more than any other parents to be able to have him in our family. This really is unbelievable. But that goes out the door. Why? Because they personalize something that isn't personal. And that astonishment, that awe, that wow, gone. Why? Because they all of a sudden said, but wait, but this is, they give in to their feelings instead of looking at the reality of the situation. The awe, the worship, the oh my God in heaven, look at this, gone. They were astonished, but Mary said, why would you do this to me? And friends, look for it because it's in your life too. It's in my life 
too. Look for it when you're a parent and you have an opportunity to teach, to help, to draw out the child who's, who's rebelling in some way, either in action or, 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 or in, in what they said. An opportunity to train, to do all the things God calls you to do, but instead you focus on how dare your child do that to you after all you've done for him or her. This is not how you raise them. This is not what I taught you. It's understandable. Mary and Joseph get it. But it is a missed opportunity. It's a missed opportunity to try our best to not take things personally and to lean into the situation and say, Lord, this is an opportunity for something. I don't know what. You know how I feel. I'm flipping mad. I want to lose my mind, but help. Instead of, wait, I work hard. Do you know how hard I work to provide? you know what your mother and I, what we say no to so we can save enough money so we can go on this vacation and we're here one day and you're going to act like this? Why would you do this to me? How could you? Look for it during those opportunities. Look for it when you're a friend of someone who responds differently than you thought they would. And instead of trying to draw them out or better understand why they're doing something, your first concern is why they would do that to you. Why would they act that way to you? Talk to you. How could they to you? And so it's not just how could they or why would they, it's how could they to me, why would they to me, I personalize things that really aren't personal. Look for it when someone reaches out to tell you a hard thing, musters up the courage because they know the Lord would have you be honest with them. They want to speak the truth in love so that you might grow up into Christ even better than you are right now. Ephesians 4 verse 15, it's a great thing, it's a courageous thing, it's not an easy thing, and you start calling to mind what you could say about them. Wow, okay, so you're really, okay. What about you? You know what? No, go ahead. No, go, no, no, really, this is good. Go, go. Yeah, no, I'm listening. It's awesome. Yeah, hit me again. Ever look in the mirror much? Really? You're coming to me? You. I just want to make sure we get that. You're coming to me. You. With, and then you read off the list in your mind of why they shouldn't come to you about this because of how you saw them act and respond the other day and with that thing and how could they and they're judging you and why would you do this to me? If you take things too personally, if you personalize that which is not personal, you'll miss out on opportunities. You'll miss out on opportunity for an awe-inspiring opportunity for ministry or living the Christian life or for understanding the heart of the matter, or for doing something with the opportunity you've been given, because you read your resume to yourself. And I do the same thing. I work hard for this. I don't deserve this. I am, I try my best. I do this. We raised you differently. I'm not a bad, I'm not the best dad, but I'm not a bad dad. And I'm a good citizen, and I shouldn't be treated this way. And I can't believe this. How could you, I'm a good employee. I don't deserve, why would you do this to me? Policy changed, company-wide. Why would they do this to me? If you take things too personally, you'll miss out. You will miss out on seeing God in the thing at all. 
because you're just looking at yourself and why you would be treated this way. Mary and Joseph, they're astonished. It's gone. Why would he do this to us? Why would you do this to us, son? Son, why would you do this to us? Uh, Letter B, your focus on self will cloud your view of God. Uh, Look at verse 49. Uh, Luke 2, verse 49. Jesus said to them, why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? I don't think what Jesus said was terribly hard to understand. Why were you looking for me? Like, wouldn't this be the first place you'd... Like, you're like checking the stalls and rest areas. Why would you not... Like, why, why would you not think I'd be here? I'd, would you not know that I'd be in my father's house? Look at verse 50. And they did not understand the saying he spoke to them. Why didn't they understand? Well, they were too heat. I, I get it. I'm not judging them. I'm just saying what it is. They're too heated, too upset, too emotional to understand, listen to me, the word of God. Do you understand the importance of this moment? This is the first record. If you have a red letter Bible, you haven't seen red letters in Luke before now. This is the first recorded words of Jesus. But if Mary and Joseph are just, I can't believe you would do this. We had to leave the group. We got the other kids in tow. We had to leave the, or maybe they left the other kids behind. I don't know. We got the other, they, they obviously don't keep their kids with them. Anyway, no, but I mean, they, they had to leave the group. We got to come back and find you. We've been looking. We've been worried, sick. Why would you do this to us? And Jesus is like, why wouldn't you look for me here first? He's not sassing them. Why wouldn't you look for me here first? I'm the son of God. I would be about my father's business. Verse 50, they don't understand. I don't, we just, we got it. Let's just go, okay? Let's just go. No one stands in my way more than me when it comes to my erroneous views of God and life. No one stands in my way more than me. If I'm off, it's usually not someone else's fault. 99.99999% of the time, it's me. If I'm questioning God's goodness in a matter, his kindness, his sovereignty, his, his love, his grace towards me because of a present reality I'm facing... I fool myself, talking about Peter, I fool myself into thinking it's the circumstances that are impacting my view of God. But that's really not true. It's my interpretation of the circumstances that's causing me to doubt what I knew to be true before. And when I lose focus, oftentimes it's because my view is obstructed, not by the circumstances, by my interpretation of the circumstances. Nobody gets in in way of me more than me. When it comes to me understanding circumstances in light of God's word, which I know not perfectly, but well. But if I get into this, yeah, but you, this is different. Why would they do this to me? This is, why would it happen to me? You know, it goes out the door. God's word. Truth that I know to be true in the light, but when I'm in a dark place, like, yeah, but I don't, this is different. This is different. Nobody gets in my way more than me. Uh, Letter C, you value what's temporary more than what's eternal. And for that, uh, keep your place in Luke 2. We'll come back to that. But uh, go to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Second Corinthians chapter 4, look at verse 17. 
2 Corinthians 4, verse 17 says, For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. If you're taking things too personally, you won't see what's happening now as light or momentary. You'll see it as heavy and lasting forever. God's word tells us really pretty consistently to look at this present life, our trials, our tribulations, the things that we go through, even persecution as both light and momentary. All throughout the scriptures, we see different Christians saying this and believing this. Romans 8 and verse 18, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. First uh, Peter 5 and verse 10, and after you have suffered a little while, you have to understand when Peter says a little while, he means like life. After you suffered a little while, the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. But if you're taking things personally, you will lose perspective on what is light and momentary and what is eternal. And you will flip it upside down. What I'm going through right now is the heaviest thing ever. It is neither light nor momentary because it hasn't stopped and I don't see an exit. If I'm taking things personally, I don't see the light and momentary. Oh, eternal weight of... Quite frankly, stop talking to me about heaven, okay? Heaven's not a place on earth. That was just a song. Right now, what I'm going through right now, don't tell me about heaven. Great. So I'll go to heaven when I die? Thanks. For, that helps a lot. But I happen to be alive right now, and I'm going through what I'm going through. And you're saying, but there's an eternal weight of... Glory. Just, I don't even have time for you. When we're taking things personally, what about me? What about me? Why would this happen to me? We lose sight of what is temporary and what is eternal. And finally, letter D, you live as if what you see is all there really is. 2 Corinthians 4 verse 18. As we look not to the things that are what? Seen, but to the things that are unseen. Because the things that I see, this life, this world, these trials, even the things that we love, the things that are seen are what? transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. You say, yeah, but you know what? I only know what I see. I see what I see. You can't deny it. You see it too. Like, yeah, but we're supposed to have a different perspective. I don't, it's right in front of your face, bro. Look at what we're going through. What about you? When was the last time you think you're taking something personally. That didn't really make sense. When was the last time you took something more personally than you should have? The sad thing is, we usually realize it after the fact, right? Like if you knew it right now, you would at least have a shot of stopping it. But if we could open our eyes and look for it and say, is this, am I really taking things personally? Am I taking that person more Seriously, is that child have a vendetta against me or is that child doing something that has to do between him or her and God and I'm actually just a parent in the process? It's not how would you do this to me. It's why would you do this, sweetie? Why would you do this, son? Not how dare you do this to me. But we'll miss out on those opportunities in life, in parenting, in relationships, in fellowship, in friendships if it's all about, no, this is a personal thing. This is personal. You need to be careful not to personalize that which isn't personal. Uh, back to Luke chapter 2. Uh, point number two, you need to submit to authorities even when they're imperfect. 
It's like a super great Sunday to be preaching that. But uh, Luke chapter 2, verse 51. What did Jesus do? He went down with them and came to Nazareth and was what? He was what? Submissive to them. What could Jesus have said in return to Mary and Joseph? A lot. And anything he would have said would have been right because he's God. If Jesus looked at his parents and said, hey, you know what? Have you ever thought of this? I created you. That would have been quite a moment. Would he have been right? Yep. What if Jesus said what parents say to kids sometimes? What if Jesus looked at his parents and said, I brought you into this world. I could take you out. (laughs) Would he have been right? Yep. Jesus does none of that. Instead, verse 51, he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. Even after 12-year-old Jesus corrected his parents, he remained submissive to them nonetheless. He could have said, you're idiots. You're fools. I'm God. I'm the son of God. He submitted to his imperfect earthly parents because they were raised up by his perfect heavenly father. Turn to the book of Romans, chapter 13. Romans, chapter 13. beginning, Beginning in verse 1. It says, let every person be subject to the governing authorities. You say, what does this have to do with it? Mary and Joseph weren't governing authorities. Just give me a minute. For there is no authority except from who? From what? God. Again, there's no authority except from God. So that's not said super loudly and in unison. Let's try that again. There is no authority except from God. Good. And those that exist have been instituted by? Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what? has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. No, no, no. Guys, sometimes I just pause. You're not reading. (laughs) Will incur God? No. Let's just close in prayer. (laughs) That was a massive fail on my part. Will incur God. Ah, gee whiz. I've got to try to recover from this. You think Jesus submitted to his earthly parents because he was super impressed with them? Nope. Jesus submitted to his earthly parents because he knows there is no authority except from, now you can say it, and that those who exist have been instituted by, and when you resist them, you're resisting God. It wasn't because Jesus had so much admiration for his earthly parents. It's because Jesus had so much love for his heavenly father. In John 19 and verse 11, he says to Pilate, you would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given to you from above. 
Listen to me. Submission is not an action. It is not. Uh, You can do what someone says all day long, every day for the rest of your life. Dot every I, cross every T. Exactly as they say it. And still not be submissive. Submission is not an action. Submission is an act of the will. It informs and leads to actions. But submission, this is a heart thing. It's not a do thing. It's a mind thing. It's not a do thing. You can do something. You can be perfectly obedient and not submissive. Do you understand that? It's, a, it's an attitude. It's an attitude of the heart. That you say, you know what? I willingly, that's what Jesus said, right? I mean, by his actions. I have imperfect parents. I'm willingly going to place myself under the authority that God has put into my life even though I am God and can take them out. I will be submissive to them. Why? Because these authorities were instituted by God, and I don't want to resist God. I want to please God. Submission is an act of the will. Here's something else. By and large, God calls Christians to be a submissive people. By and large, God calls Christians to be a submissive people. Stop with the outliers. Okay, people are like, well, if the government were to come up to my house and try to steal my kids, I should just do that? My first, before I answer that question, I usually ask a question. Did that happen to you? Is that happening that I'm unaware of? People always ask these extreme questions to try to make it not necessary to obey God in the norm. Like just in the norm of everyday life. Well, what if this happens? There's good answers to those questions. Should I submit to my husband if he beats me daily? There's an answer to that question. We should talk about it. By and large, what I'm saying is that God instructs his people to be a submissive people. We have a posture of submission in life. You can't read through the New Testament very long without seeing Jesus depict this or the word of God calling for someone, else, or for, for someone to submit to someone else. No, submission is the wife thing. Yeah, no. It's like the Christian thing, bro. It's, it's, yes, yes, there's a thing for wives as well, but you can't read throughout the New Testament and not see God calling you to submit to another human being as a Christian. And get this. Every time the word of God calls us to submit to an earthly authority, watch, a heavenly reason is not far from it. Every time. Whether, whenever God calls us to submit to a temporary earthly authority, there's an eternal heavenly reminder right around the corner. God's not just do it and shut up. Just submit because I said so. He could. He's God. He doesn't do that. Romans 13. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God. See that? Right here on earth, right back up to heaven. Where else? I'm glad you asked. Ephesians 5.21. Submit to one another. Out of reverence for Christ. Ephesians 5.22. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. Ephesians 6.1. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Ephesians 6.5. Bondservants, obey your earthly masters. Doesn't just stop there. With a sincere heart as you would Christ. As bondservants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. There's actually more God than earth there. Colossians 3. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Colossians 3.20. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Hebrews 13. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls. 1 Peter 2.18. Servants, be subject to your masters, for this is a gracious thing. When mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. 
You see a pattern? I've got more. 1 Peter 3.1. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives. One to who? One to Christ. 1 Peter 3.5. For this is how holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands. So actually, that's God before the submission. This is how holy women hoped in God by submitting to their own husbands. 1 Peter 5.5. 5. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. 1 Peter 2, verses 12 and 13. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution. Do you see that? Earth, heaven. Heaven, earth. Submit to the God. God, people. People, God. It is constantly connected. You say, yeah, that's not really in our DNA as Americans. I don't know if you heard how we started out. It wasn't really by submitting to authority. I couldn't agree more. Not in our DNA as Americans. It's not a way of life for citizens of America. Listen to me. Submission is a way of life for citizens of the kingdom of God. I don't know if I see it that way. I get it. It's hard to read the Bible clearly if you're looking through the flag. Put it down. I'm not not patriotic. I'm glad you have it. But it will obstruct your view. Do not wrap your Bible in your flag. Read it for how God wrote it. What about you? What authority has God raised up in your life that you find yourself reluctant or refusing to submit to? Not what authority is in your life. There is not a single authority in your life that has not been raised up by God. Put the outliers aside. We're talking about the normal the normal way of life. I want to know what authority has God raised up in your life that you are reticent, reluctant, refusing to submit to. One of Jesus' first earthly, actually the first earthly recorded action of Jesus here in Luke 2 is he's submitting to his imperfect parents. This is the first choice Jesus had to make. You know, see, Jesus was so obedient. Look at how he was circumcised. He was eight days old, bro. He was laying there. He just goes along with the flow with his parents. But now Jesus is making a choice. He is choosing to be submissive to his imperfect parents. It's the first choice you know of Jesus. What does he do? Humble himself and submit to imperfect, foolish people that God has raised up. If Jesus Christ, God the Son, submitted himself to earthly, imperfect authorities, we ought to as well. Point number one, you need to be careful not to personalize that which is impersonal. Point number two, you need to submit to authorities even when they're imperfect. And point number three... You need to grow because even Jesus grew. Look at Luke chapter 2. Do you notice the beginning and end of this section is bookended by verses that talk about Jesus growing? Look at Luke chapter 2 and verse 40. And the child what? The child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. Look at verse 52. And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. 
you say, wait a minute. How does he increase in favor with God if he has always been pleasing to God, if he's the son of God? Because as he lived his life, at every opportunity, he was obedient. And so God looks down and goes, attaboy. That's my son. God's not surprised, but he's pleased. Attaboy. That's my son. Look at him. He's suffering well. Look at him. He's serving well. Attaboy. Keep it up. Grows in favor with his heavenly father. And my point is, if Jesus has to grow, we do too. In favor with God and man. You are like Jesus if you are growing in favor with God and man. Jesus grew through suffering. Jesus grew through obedience. We don't have time, but it's all there in your outline. He actually became, he is perfected in his obedience. At every opportunity he had, he suffered well. Every time he was tempted, he did not give in to temptation. He suffered well. He served well. Turn to Hebrews 4, verses 15 and following as we close. I'd like to ask the worship team to come on up. Look at verse 14. Hebrews 4, verse 14. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Jesus grew through suffering well. Jesus grew through serving well. Jesus grew through resisting temptation and honoring the Father at every opportunity that he was given. And therefore, look at the next verse, verse 16. Let us then with what? Confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. What about you? Perhaps more than ever before, we have felt the need to run for help. In our minds, in our hearts, it may not be literally, but run for help. Where do you go? You draw near to someone or something. Where do you go? To whom do you run? What website do you log into? What do you read? Verse 16 says, we can with confidence draw near to this. I don't know if this will be helpful. Um, All right. It's not hopefully it'll work out. We with confidence can draw near to the throne of grace to find help in our time of need. And we don't have to do it once. We can do it over and over and over and over because we're told that his mercies are new, what? Every morning because he's faithful. He has mercies for you for that day. It's not like you just came to me yesterday. Give it a rest, bro. Mercies new every morning because he's faithful to help, faithful to love, and faithful to provide. May we as God's children be known as people who run to our Heavenly Father for help long before we run to ourselves or to any other worldly source of wisdom because there's grace and mercy to help us in our time of need. God, we are grateful for your word and thankful that you are 
always providing mercy, grace, courage where it's needed, help where it's needed, a boldness where we need it. And so we come to you again, uh, unashamed. We don't come, oh, I came to you recently. I know it's, I don't mean to bother. We come to you boldly saying, we need more. We need help. We need courage. We need discernment. We need mercy. We need so much from you, Lord. And we trust that you will provide it. Lord, you are Jehovah Jireh, the God who provides. You rejoice in giving us what we need for your glory and for our good. And so may we, like Jesus, seek to honor you at every opportunity we have, even and especially when it's hard. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.